You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi, welcome to Fever Dreams. Uh, my name's Will Summer. I'm a political reporter at The Daily Beast and the author of an upcoming book on QAnon for HarperCollins. And I'm Aswin Subtang, but please call me Swin. I'm a senior political reporter at The Daily Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. All right, here on Fever Dreams, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious and sometimes scary world of the American right as they continue to influence our politics. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, these grifters, and these influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Will, Happy New Year! First recorded episode of 2022. How are you feeling? I'm back, man. I'm ready to pod. Let's do it. Okay, for starters, you have been tracking something that actually went down on New Year's Eve 2021. Will, would this be a chance something that Republican officials were trying to bury at a time when significantly fewer people are actually following the news? Yeah, so this is New Year's Eve. Folks are breaking out the champagne, getting ready to sing Old Lang Syne. But in my home state of Texas, there's an interesting development in the audit saga. So for a while, obviously, we've reported on the desire to audit everything, even states that Donald Trump won. So in this case, <laughs> uh, a few months ago, the some Republican officials at the high level there in Texas, they sort of bowed to pressure from activists and said, we're, well, we're going to audit votes, too, just like Arizona. And like in Arizona, they went after the most populous and Democratic counties. Just by coincidence. Sheer coincidence. Right. Oh, well, we, let's not look where the Republican strongholds are. So basically, they ended up, this was really hotly anticipated. Oh, we're going to get to the bottom of this. What have these Democrats been up to? This kind of stuff. And then they just push it out. New Year's Eve. Not even a time when no one's paying attention. And as it turned out, this is a report from the Secretary of State of Texas. They found basically nothing wrong with the results in these four counties, including my home county of Harris County, Houston where we don't do any voter fraud. Thank you very much. Let me give you a quick rundown here. This is an article in the Texas Tribune. Dallas, 10 ballot discrepancy. And they looked into it. Okay, someone entered the data wrong. Okay, all right, solved. Voter fraud averted. And the margin in Dallas, was it like 10 or 11 votes? Would Donald Trump have carried it if it weren't for this 10 individual discrepancy? No, of course not. Right. I mean, so Donald Trump won Texas by big numbers, much more than 10. In Harris County, a whopping five vote difference. Again, someone just entered the numbers wrong. So all of these examples just prove how ridiculous this whole audit thing is and this idea that the election was stolen. Of course, that's not going to stop Republicans from using this kind of phantom idea of voter fraud to restrict voting access in Texas and elsewhere. When you and I first started covering the Republican Party's audit fever across different states, pretty close to the start of 2021, we were getting into it quite a bit from the very beginning on this podcast. And at the time, I think, if I recall correctly, we made some jokes about how the logical conclusion of this was them auditing places and states that they had clearly won, places that are Donald Trump and GOP strongholds. I remember at the time while we were cracking those jokes, I was like, okay, wait, it's definitely going to happen, isn't it? There is a roughly 0% chance that they're not actually going to do this thing, which if you and I had sat down to write some really awful two-on-the-nose satire, that's what we would have written. We would have written that they were going to audit Alabama. They were going to audit Texas. They were going to audit all these places that very clearly Donald Trump won comfortably in the 2020 presidential election. And lo and behold, they've spent all this time, money and resources, official resources doing it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really crazy. Like one hand, you can understand it. I think the motivations are clear because there are these grassroots activists who are really extremely riled up about the concept of voter fraud. And then these Republican officials, it basically cost them nothing to say, yeah, sure, why not? Let's do it. Let's audit it. Right. Like if they're self-aware enough to know that this is all bullshit, which it is, it benefits them directly. It either benefits them in terms of fueling uh, these drives for these big, bad voter and election crackdown laws that they're convinced will inevitably benefit conservatives. And on another level, it 
helps fuel the conspiracy theory mongering that they also find very beneficial to like whipping up the grassroots supporters and donors, whether they believe it or not. A lot of them do. A lot of them actually don't. It's just a win-win for them in the most cynical of ways. Yeah, exactly. And then you push it out New Year's Eve. So right. When you find nothing, you just news dump it on the day that basically nobody's paying attention to like actual political news. <laughs> Yeah, you end up leaving the question open, right? So like you raised, oh, wow, I guess there really must be issues if they have to do an audit. And then people never really see that final story saying there were no problems. So you leave it open, you kind of keep that storyline going. So this audit thing is, I think it's proven, the audits themselves really flop. But I think weirdly audits have become this really kind of powerful political tool. So I think, uh, unfortunately, I think we're going to be seeing uh, plenty more 2022, 2023 and going forward. Right. And also they become this wellspring as a sidebar for unintentional and really perverse and dark hilarity. Like you wrote a story very recently about a different audit in a different state, Arizona, and how the leading backers of that audit, the big granddaddy audit. Oh, yes, yes. This is the godfather of all of the Carlitos ways that came in, in the wake of them. So what's going on with the leading backers of the Arizona audit? Is it turning into the sort of situation that happens with all of these deranged but somehow influential MAGA cliques where they end up turning on each other rapaciously and can't drive enough knives into enough backs of their fellow compatriots? Am I guessing correctly here? You are guessing right. This is an article I wrote Monday for the Beast. Folks can check it out for more details. But basically, this features, we really love feuds here on Fever Dreams. And then we love keeping up with the drama. We're like Keemstar. We give you all the drama out there. Right. We try to spill all the tea. Right. Exactly. Yeah. We're like one of those tea Instagram channels. And in this case, the tea is between the Dumoy or what have you, is between Jovan Pulitzer. Friend of the show. Alleged failed treasure hunter, which is how I have to put it. So Jovan does not try to prove that his treasure is legit. This is a guy who's big involved in the audit. And then a rival of his named David Clements, or as he's known in the community, The Professor. And so basically, The Professor has been claiming that Jovan botched the Arizona audit. Jovan had this kind of magical technology that claimed to detect foals that could tell if ballots were fake. The Professor was going after him because now people are kind of left holding the bag because the Arizona audit flopped. And now they have to like find a culprit to explain all these people donated all this money and all these hopes were placed on the audit, putting Trump back in the White House. That didn't happen. And so these guys have just been going back and forth, back and forth. And so this is all playing out on Telegram. So Jovan pointed out, he started being like, you're not a real professor. You were like an associate professor. You didn't have tenure. You recently got fired for refusing to get a vaccine. And then this guy, who again goes by the name The Professor, says, well, I don't think I've made being a professor that much of my branding. <laughs> <laughs> also, that's a cheap shot. If you're an associate professor. So he was tenure track. Give him a break, Jovan. Like, he hadn't earned tenure. You right, know? right. And like, if you're an assistant editor at a magazine, does that mean you're not an editor? Come on now. Come on. Yeah, I mean, so then these guys start doxing each other back and forth. The way to do a dox is like, you screenshot the text message with someone, but then you're like, can you believe what he texted me? But then like, you include the phone number in it. And so that's what they started doing to each other. And then Jovan was like, I'm going to stab you in the face with the truth. It was very intense. And I was like, Jovan, you're saying you're going to stab this guy? And he's like, it's a metaphor. So when he originally made that pseudo threat. Did he say it the way you just said it, where he kind of like stumbles and is like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I have to say something that makes it at least somewhat clear that this is a metaphor and not a physical threat. He kept talking about stabbing this guy in the face with the truth. I mean, it was a very visceral metaphor. So they start doxing each other. Their friends start calling, harassing their rivals. And then Jovan starts prank calling the people harassing him and saying like, just really explicit, kind of like very like penis heavy prank calls. Hey, Gina, how you doing? This is Richard H. Richard. You can, refer to, you can refer to me as Dick, huge dick. And so this big dick is calling you because you want to text me and speak about my dick. Now, I actually thought you wanted to talk about little Davey Clements' dick. Of course, that'd be a very, 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 very short conversation. But if you want to talk about a big dick, please call me back. This is Richard H. Dick, Dick, huge dick. My other name is Jovan Hutton Pulitzer, and I like people that hit and run. And I actually like women that want to call me and talk about my dick. So will you please call me back? Thank you. And you might say, Will, why are you, who cares? These are a couple of kooks you found online. But like this guy is, a in Jovan's case, this guy's a foundational figure in the Arizona audit. His theories were big in the coup PowerPoint that made it to Mark Meadows. I mean, this is like one of the intellectual heavyweights right now of the election fraud movement. His ideas made it to the West Wing. 
<laughs> right, right. And let me uh, do a little crank yankers while I'm at it. So anyways, this whole thing finally culminates. They were going to have a, an online debate on New Year's night, which I think they realized. About cock sandwiches? Well, about their rival's behavior. So about cock sandwiches. They had all these preliminary rules that were like, you cannot bring up God. Because these guys love like just being like, well, God, he's on my side, whatever. It all gets botched because we're disputes over the rules. But one thing I thought was funny was Javon printed up this flyer advertising it. And it was like Jovan in one corner, like the undisputed king of auditing. And then in the other, it said junior professor. <laughs> you know, whatever. There's a lot of bad blood between these guys. And I do think it is starting to poison the itinerant vagabond audit movement where they kind of bounce from state to state pushing audits. Well, OK, speaking of the anti-democratic activity that these guys are still immersed in, we got to talk about the one year anniversary of January 6th. Dear listener, while you're listening to this, there's a good chance it is right around the time, if not on the same day of the exact one year anniversary of the January 6th riot in Washington, D.C. It's somehow been a full year since that major horrific event occurred. And I want to rewind the clock a little bit back to the day that that happened early last year, because there was a very brief, brief, brief moment where it did feel like the Republican Party wanted to banish Trump. There were former senior Trump officials and people who were still close to him and his administration who were resigning and or coming out on the record to tell reporters and to tell the public or Twitter.com or wherever that he needed to get the fuck out, that he needed to get lost. Just to give a minor sampling of people who talked to us on the record at the time, Barry Bennett, who used to be a senior advisor to Trump, just said on the record his recommendation for Trump in January 2021 was to go to Florida and stay there. Joe Grogan, the former top domestic policy advisor in the Trump White House, told us that January 6th was the darkest day for the Republican Party since Abraham Lincoln's assassination. That moment, if our listeners recall, sadly lasted at most less than three weeks. At most less than three weeks. We actually tracked it. We did reporting at the time where we were just counting down the days to which major figures would just go back to either figuratively or literally throwing their arms back around Donald Trump. It took a vanishingly small amount of time. And to be fair, I never bought, even on the day of January 6th, this would be the end of Donald Trump's leadership and stewardship of the Republican Party. I distinctly remember I was on the phone with a former Trump White House official, I think as the rioting was still going on, and I remember saying that, yeah, I'm going to be shocked if they actually abandon him. Will, you were on the ground at the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C. while the rioting was occurring. Was there ever a moment, either during that day or after it, where you bought that the Republican Party would abandon Donald Trump, or were you as cynically skeptical as I was? Yeah, I mean, I think in the moment, it seemed like there would be sort of at least a partial reconsideration. Like, I didn't think someone like Matt Gates was going to denounce Donald Trump, but I thought maybe they might have kind of put him on the shelf for a little bit. It was a crazy day, I will say. Which they did for about 40 hours. They kind of put him on the shelf. But the problem is they put him on the shelf while he was still the president of the United States. You can't really put the leader <laughs> of the free world on the shelf. That's a great point. It was sort of that effort to be like, whoa, this Trump guy does not represent us. And it's like, who's the president? <laughs> you know? Who is this dude? I was listening to an interview I just a few weeks ago. I was listening to an interview I did that day with the British radio station. And I was freaked out, man. I was lacking my usual swag. Sort of in the moment, it seemed... Like, I don't have a particularly, I feel like I don't fall for like a lot of illusions about the state of the right, but I did sort of have this sense that like someone, like they've been playing with matches for a while and someone said, you know, people can say, hey, stop playing with matches. And then they burned half the house down. And so I thought maybe they would learn a lesson from that. But apparently not really, because January 6th in a way was kind of a, the ultimate culmination of something we saw a lot in the Trump era, which was a lead up to sort of like a big moment comes out that like really kind of breaks the narrative on the right it looks really bad. Like the Access Hollywood tape is another great example. And then for like a couple hours or a couple days, there's people kind of lay low. And then someone figures out what the narrative is going to be. Once you have a narrative to rally around, you can just go forward. And so I think that's what ended up happening here. Oh, yeah. It was Charlottesville on steroids, like multiple times more dead people 
than what happened in Charlottesville. And the exact same thing happened. The exact same thing happened, except with January 6th, there were actual resignations with post-Charlottesville. There were people like Gary Cohn considering resigning, drafting resignation letters, but I don't think they actually went through with any of it. But no, you're absolutely right. They just need to figure out what the script is and then just exercise that stereotypical pseudo-legendary Republican message discipline. Because who's going to stop you? There's two parties in America. Yeah, that's exactly right. Especially in the months since then, we've seen really the birth of the like January 6th counter narrative, which is the FBI did it or the Antifa did it. That's been built up on places like Tucker Carlson so that you have a large enough of a thing that you really don't have to like deal with the reality of January 6th at all. I'm not looking for intellectual consistency in any of this, but it's sort of weird to hold up Ashley Babbitt as a slain martyr and a hero while saying, oh, wait a minute, the people who are actually causing mischief there, that was the FBI and Antifa's fault, so was she an op? Yeah, you kind of get into this interesting situation where a lot of conspiracy theory people start kind of like clashing with each other because you have people who are like, Ashley Babbitt is this martyr, this innocent woman who is merely trying to break into Congress. And then on the other hand, you have people who are like, no, she was a crisis actor and she's not really dead and that kind of stuff. So, Will, as we mentioned briefly earlier, you were on the ground that day during the riot at the U.S. Capitol. Can you take us down that dark pathway of memory lane for a quick minute just to sort of remind our audience who I believe at the very least the vast majority of which were not actually there that day? What it was like. Yeah, I think it's confident to say the audience wasn't that January 6th. Besides, the Q Shaman, of course, subscribes. But otherwise, yeah. We have a couple of reporters who might subscribe, I guess. But anyway, I mean, what are one or two things that stick out in your memory most pervasively when you actually reflect on your firsthand experience of the day? Not what we learned afterwards, not what you hear about on the news, but what it was like for you actually witnessing this moment in history, which I think is going to be dissected and talked about, including in American classrooms for a long, long time. I think just the sort of the sense of, of chaos and the sense that really anything could happen. I mean, fortunately, no lawmakers were hurt. But really at the time, number one, cell service was awful. So it ended up in a way some people watching on TV had a much better sense of the action than I did outside amongst the crowds of how far the rioters had gotten. But really just the sense that once they breached the building, it was this idea that politicians are going to start getting killed, that kind of stuff. It was really just this sort of sense of anarchy. And also, I would say, like, just for me personally, it felt really surreal. I'd been following someone like the Q Shaman for months. I was very aware of him, his antics out in Arizona. And then it was like, oh, there's the Q Shaman. He runs the Senate now, I guess. All right. Did not anticipate that. Just like people like the Q Shaman being introduced to an international audience was something. I think the obviously QAnon is something that I focus on a lot and just the number of QAnon people there. And it was really bizarre. Like the experience from the start for me was like, wow, this crowd's really, really angry and chanting where we go on, we go all when a car that they think holds Mike Pence shows up. And then they'd broken through the barricades. And I thought, okay, well, they're going to get through the lawn maybe. But really each moment was just really bizarre. And it, I think it's obvious felt chaotic. But really, it's not until you watch, I think, some of these videos of what happened that it, it kind of comes flooding back. The QAnon thing on HBO, Q into the storm, they kind of climaxes in a big, in a lot of scenes from the riot. I thought it was very well done. It was just a really, really bizarre moment in American history. And I think, unfortunately, I think as we've seen, it kind of was more of the beginning of something than an end. I try to be as transparent as possible with our listeners. So one thing I'm going to mention that I don't think I've tweeted about since it happened about a year ago was a day or two maybe three or so before January 6, 2021, I was on MSNBC and they asked me, okay, all this stuff is being organized for January 6. It appears Trump is going to speak at it. What do you think is going to happen? Should the police be gearing up for something that could really be violent and really go down? And I remember saying something to the effect of, yes, this is something that people are gearing up for, including law enforcement, but something you also have to keep in mind that a lot of these guys who like to talk tough on the Trumpian right, oftentimes their bark turns out to be worse than their bite, shall we say. Boy, did I get fucking owned. <laughs> I mean, we were aware of various, a lot of talk about taking the Capitol, like I'd mentioned it in an article. But conversely, I don't think we could have predicted, and certainly a lot of other people didn't predict, that the, the Capitol Police and just law enforcement in general would botch things so badly. Um, and and just be completely unprepared as it turned out. But but then again, also didn't expect the president to say, hey, march on down there. Let's show Congress what we think of him. OK, moving on to something else. Will, 
you lately have been tracking the chaos in the manosphere. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And also tell me why we are still using the term manosphere in 2022. Isn't that something that should have been left behind in like 2015 or 2016 at the latest? Right. So, hey, manosphere, again, folks, that's manosphere with an M. It's a sphere full of men. And in this case, it's a term for this kind of like faction of the far right that is very focused on masculinity more so than others. Right. Really performative faux masculinity. But yes. Yeah. It's kind of like the the new stage of the pickup artist movement. Like a lot of those guys kind of fell off because I think ultimately they realized that it basically just became a bad look, I guess I would say. And so they kind of changed into either trad Caths or really hardcore Catholic converts, or in this case, or maybe Greek Orthodox in the case of, of some of the major ones, or they became real like manosphere guys. And so this is like a guy posting on Instagram, like his steak and his cigars. It's kind of like a blend of people in this movement. It's like survivalists, like a lot of gun guys. Even the grift of this nature on that sort of alt-right or alt-light sector of American conservatism, the grift does have to evolve. It ages in the same way as most men or women age in this country, where if you're the 40 or 50 year old guy still trying to do really pathetic, like negging or pickup lines at the bar, not very many people want to read that blog when you're as old as Henry Winkler or something like that. <laughs> yeah, right. The peacocking has an expiration date. You can only wear a uh, like a top hat or a fireman's uniform or whatever to a bar so many times. Right. It's like, why are you still coming to the frat party? You graduated 18 years ago. <laughs> right. So I think the way I would sum up the manosphere is ba it's basically like guys who are obsessed with like being alphas, right? They have all these like kind of theories of masculinity. So there's been a lot of news in the manosphere of late. And the other thing I should say is manosphere has like a lot of weird connections more broadly to right-wing figures. And we'll get into this, but these are not kind of like guys who are off on their own. They're very much a part of the ecosystem we cover here on Fever Dreams. Right, like Donald Trump, who they for some reason think is hyper-masculine. Obviously a normal person with a normal brain would struggle to figure out why exactly. But he really is like the guardian angel of their movement, which is just a subset of a subset of an actual movement, basically. Right. So here on the, the Manosphere in the past few weeks, so first, you know, there's some sad news, like internally tragic for the people who were killed. This guy who was sort of a second tier Manosphere writer named Lyndon McLeod, he went on a, a shooting spree in Denver and, and killed five people. This is obviously a very serious issue. But I think what it, what is interesting here beyond just the gun violence is the fact that this guy was very open about his plans to kill these specific people. And then within the Manosphere, he literally wrote a book about how he was going to kill these people and named them. And then all these guys in the Manosphere we're like, this book rocks. Really crazy. Like, this is a guy who is, he had like kind of some survivalist, kind of like some occultist stuff going on. My sense was he like lived in a cabin somewhere. I mean, this would be sort of like if like the Unabomber manifesto, I say this, I mean, people, there's kind of like now this renaissance of people like praising the Unabomber. But like, this would be like if this manifesto was going around and people were like, this guy's so crazy, haha. -ha. Like, but I like his ideas. And then suddenly he starts killing people. Right. Or if people treated the Turner Diaries like it was the latest Netflix miniseries. It's like, no, you got to draw the line somewhere. <laughs> right. I mean, so I think this sort of the gives the lie to like how sick this Manosphere group is because they, they had this guy who was he wasn't like the biggest name in the Manosphere, but but he was hanging out with a lot of them. Right. He was like the Herman's hermit of the Manosphere, basically. So this is a guy who <laughs> he was interviewed by like like a lot of like prominent figures. But at the same time, they would do these interviews and it was kind of like acknowledging that this guy might kill people. Like like I saw this one interview someone did with him. They said, oh, well, he went by this name Roman McClay. And they said, Roman is so crazy. Like he might teach you how to be a real man or he might murder you. And they're like, oh, ha, 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 ha. And then he has this book and he literally names these people. And these are real people he named, not like fictionalized versions. Um. Oh, he used their names. Yeah, he would be like, if I said like Swin, very specifically, he named the real people and how he was going to kill him. And then he did it. And so, I mean, these people love this book. There's this guy named Ivan, a big Manosphere character named Ivan Throne, who is a, who calls himself the Dark Triad Man, which which is some Manosphere concept. Everybody knows if you want masculinists to take you seriously, you have to come up with the dumbest nickname as possible. <laughs> I mean, I, Ivan Throne is really, and he, of course, he has a goatee. He had this interview with this guy where he was saying, people won't like your book because if everyone started reading your book, like society would collapse. And it was like, yeah, well, it's a murder manifesto, as it turns out. So anyways, I mean, I think there's a lot more to come on this. And obviously, this is tragedy. 
I have a question for you on this McLeod guy. Am I pronouncing his name correctly? Yeah. McLeod? Yeah, yeah McLeod. McLeod. Yeah. Okay, so when these deranged far-right mass shooters come out and maybe their manifestos trickle out in the news right after, when it comes to Donald Trump, some of them adore Donald Trump explicitly. Some of them are kind of agnostic on him. Others don't like him because they don't like that Jared Kushner, who is Jewish, is his son-in-law, and they don't think he's ex as extreme enough. Where did this guy stand on the contemporary politics of the day vis-a-vis -vis Donald Trump? Did he have any opinions about the guy at all in his manifesto? So I will say the manifesto is, among other things, completely incoherent. I took a look at it. Oh, shocking. Yeah. On Amazon where it's available is its own issue. But a lot of these guys see Trump as like not extreme enough or, or what have you. I suspect he fell into that camp. I think the fact that this kind of boiled over into murder is not just about the manosphere. And I think it tells us something about a lot of these far right groups, whether it's QAnon or Fox News pumping up these fears about caravans and immigration. And then suddenly someone who takes this seriously goes, oh, well, I guess I should go murder someone over this. And then you see the people who've been promoting these ideas say, whoa, hey, hey, that wasn't what we meant. So same thing here happened at the manosphere where suddenly this guy that everyone loved and they loved his murder manifesto is saying, whoa, hey, this isn't my fault. I, I wasn't involved in this. So I think a tragic story here. They try to put it on par with, oh, I was just playing Grand Theft Auto. I didn't actually want to go on a killing spree. We were just basically role playing. Oh, wouldn't it be cool if we just talked to the mass murder fantasizing men? And it's like, okay, I get it. Everybody loves fictional action movies where things blow up and there are no stakes. But just reading the stuff about this guy and what he was pumping out online, if you have a normal functioning brain, you don't have to read more than a couple of paragraphs to realize that, okay, this guy might actually be a real psycho. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of wild that they're acting like this guy kind of infiltrated their community. They had no idea. I mean, I think it was pretty obvious. They said they were constantly talking about how he might murder people. I mean, they thought that was cool and edgy and obviously it's not. But you know, there is another story out of the Manosphere this week that is lighter and I think gets into the weird ways that the Manosphere fits into, into the far right. It's also tangentially related to this story, isn't it? Yes, exactly, exactly. And so this is the story of a guy named Jack Murphy, who is a very masculine... That's his code name. Yeah. Code name, yeah. His real name is John Goldman. But his alias, his nom de man, is Jack Murphy. And so this is a guy who kind of went through a lot of iterations on the right. But most recently, he was one of these guys who's like, I'm going to make you a real man. He had this group called the Liminal Order, which is kind of a weird, like like a lot of like Masonic symbols, I think, going on here. A lot of like maybe like Gnostic elements. But basically, he also has this beard. Kind of the key part of the branding, I would say, is the beard. And he has a big beard. And in the kind of the center part, like under the chin, it's dyed brown, but the rest is gray. It almost looks like a fork or something, or maybe like an Assassin's Creed character. So here's Rod Dreher's description of this guy. Rod Dreher, of course, kind of oddball himself. Our favorite American conservative columnist, by the way. He writes, he's a striking figure, very tall, bald, with a dramatic beard. So I bring this up to say I'm not just picking on this guy for his beard. It's a big part of the, the whole thing. Have you heard about this guy before his kind of recent spate of fame or infamy? A little bit. I think starting in 2015, 2016, I would see him at a small handful, maybe a couple of events, because he was one of these guys who I think lived in the D.C. area, who fancied himself a Roosh V acolyte and a Mike Cernovich acolyte who was trying to get into Trumpian national conservative politics while also being a quote-unquote masculinity blogger or a sex life columnist wannabe or stuff like that. So he was just someone that if you went to enough parties hosted at places like CPAC or stuff of that ilk, you might see him or you might bump into him. I would put him on par in that vein with something like a Lucian Wintrich at the beginning of the Trump era or a Cassandra Fairbanks. Lucian, what an icon, man. A gateway pundit writer. Yeah, well, we haven't heard from Lucian in a while. Well, we're, we? we're working a bit off track, <laughs> but I would love to discuss Lucian. So Jack Murphy was kind of an, a, a guy you saw around at right-wing DC events, but then ultimately he made this kind of full jump to be like big macho guy. You can join in the liminal order he would travel around the country having brunches called jacked brunch where you could pay 500 bucks to talk to him at like uh gordon Biersch or whatever so i wouldn't pay 500 bucks to brunch with like jamie fox like i'm sorry <laughs> Interesting insight into for you who like the most the coolest person to brunch with would be. Oh, 
Oh, he he's awesome. He was in Michael Mann's TV ver- movie version Jamie of Miami Fox. Vice. I don't see what you have against Jamie Foxx. This is for another episode, but fuck you. Jamie Foxx is awesome. This guy, weirdly, had all these writings. These writings were pretty well known among the right and, and those of us who follow the right because before he made this pivot to be like, I'm the head of the liminal order. Let's be real macho. He wrote this sort of like sex blog where he would talk about how into cuckolding he was, how he would, in his words here, pimp out his girlfriend, how he was so into her sleeping with other guys. Now, look, you know, whatever. But this kind of stuff. We do not kink shame at Fever Dreams. I want to be very clear. Exactly. But but then when you make this pivot to being like, I'm this big masculine, this upholder of family values. And when you come a fellow at the Claremont Institute, this tower of the right, which is what this Jack Murphy guy did, then this stuff kind of starts coming out. And so in this case, a few weeks ago, he got in a beef with some people at the Blaze, Glenn Beck's outfit, because they interviewed him and said, hey, so regarding the cuckolding? And he goes, F you, F you, and storms off. But then more stuff kind of dribbles out about this guy. People find, and, and people find that he did all this paid uh, pornography a few years ago is pretty explicit stuff. We won't really get into that, but this kind of undermined his claim to be this kind of family values guy, as you might say. And I think it also, for a lot of people, raised some questions about the Claremont Institute that they would let this guy who is a, I guess, like a sex guru in a way. Sex guru is giving a lot of credit that might be undeserved here, but sure. That they would let this guy kind of become this figure among, like here are other members of the class of the Claremont Lincoln Fellows. Someone who founded the American Conservative, a state representative, Charlie Kirk of Turning Point USA. So, I mean, the idea that, I mean, look, I mean, those guys are not exactly like the greatest minds themselves, but the idea that this guy would kind of just slot in because he's like, yeah, I founded this like sinister group called the Liminal Order. Can I become one of the faces of American conservatism? I think it raised a lot of questions as well about the Claremont Institute. I got to be honest, when I started catching up on this, because some people I followed started tweeting about the so-called Jack Murphy porn saga. And I was like, what, what the fuck are these people talking about? The more I read about this, maybe I'm too much of a bleeding heart here. I started feeling sorry for the guy because holy shit, the amount of the so-called manosphere and that part of the Trumpian idiotic pro-man right that has been just pillorying this guy nonstop on social media has been dramatic, I think, even for your average internet pylon. Among other things, a bunch of people, I'm not talking about like a handful of people, a bunch of people keep demanding nonstop for the past several days, week and a half, however long it's been, that Tim Pool, Mr. Big Shot, big old YouTube man, who has hosted this Jack Murphy character on his show on a number of times, there are so many Tim Pool fans just flooding his comments and super chats demanding that he cancel Jack Murphy. <laughs> yeah, this guy's really been immolated. I mean, kind of what I described is obviously a there's a lot of material out there, as it were. He's been denounced by a figure who calls himself the first president of the manosphere. Who who is wait, wait, back up. Who is the first it's a guy named Anthony Dream Johnson? His Twitter handle is Beach Muscles. To give you an idea of what we're working with here. Does he have beach muscles? Does he? I'm not sure. I can't speak to his muscles. I would just like to close on this. And first of all, like it's worth noting that because the Manosphere is all these guys who are obsessed with being alphas, like it's even more filled with infighting and jockeying for position than I think your average right-wing group. Our columnist, Matt Lewis, who's, who's a conservative himself, he had an interesting take on this whole saga because it was kind of for him, like the Claremont Institute always seen as this kind of like kind of staid upholder of conservative values. Instead, it's inviting guys like this inside so I think it's how the conservative values and reaction have changed during the Trump administration. Because so he writes, because conservatism sees itself as under siege, there are few standards for joining the cause. Because it distrusts information and media reports, it is allergic to vetting. And so because, you know, as a result, we have these guys who are just coming in who have all these really explicit writings. I didn't even touch on his writings about rape and suddenly who become, you know, these conservative vanguards and ultimately blows up in their faces. OK, moving on from that. Next up, Will. This week's guest for our interview is none other than the MAGA infiltrator. Tell us a little bit about her. Sure. We, this is a woman named Amanda Moore. She's an interesting figure. She lost her job at the start of 2021 and decided to use her free time sort of building a persona in the far right. She started attending all these events, QAnon events, CPAC, various really far right events, and just as an attendee. 
And so she sort of became a part of these social circles. Unbeknownst to her new friends, she was recording them a lot of the time and really sort of getting a sense of, of what the right looks like from the inside. We mentioned her on the podcast before. She had sort of a viral Twitter thread about it. And so I'm interested to see what she saw and how she got out of it. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okay, today on Fever Dreams, we're joined by Amanda Moore. She is a woman who decided to infiltrate the MAGA movement and see it up close in person by going to all these Republican and conspiracy theory events around the country in 2021. Uh, she saw quite a lot of strange stuff, so we're so glad to have her on the podcast. And she's available on Twitter, where you can get her thoughts and her insights on the right at no Turtle Soup 17 Amanda, thanks so much for coming on the pod. Thanks for having me. Great. So Amanda, give us a bit of your background and how you ended up going on this sort of year-long odyssey on the right. Well, I've always been interested in following you know, everything going on on the right. I went to a handful of Trump rallies. I went to his inauguration, recorded everything, but I have a job that's in a completely unrelated field and that field is live events. So it was completely closed down for COVID. So all of a sudden I had a bunch of free time and nothing really to do, but I guess pursue my interest. And so I started going to a couple of things and it just kind of spiraled into me being undercover for almost a year. I guess, when did you make the jump from, I'm going to these rallies, what have you, checking this out, to this should become kind of a big project? I went to CPAC and a blood and soil fascist asked me to help out recruit Congress people into his grassroots movement. And that's when I was like, okay, I guess I have a whole second life now. Obviously, I was at the insurrection, which I went into it not realizing it was going to be an insurrection versus just another stop the steel rally. And that made me a little bit more willing to spend money and fly down to CPAC. But even then, I was still kind of just hanging out and recording things, but not an active participant in any way. But that fascist asking me to help out with his organization is kind of what changed the game for me. Tell me about that. I mean, who is this person and how did you, because I guess that was sort of like your entree into into this world of kind of like trusted figures on the right. Yeah. So the organization has been in the news a little bit recently with some of the stuff they've done around Turning Point USA. They're called Republicans for National Renewal. And the guy who recruited me, when I say blood is well fascist, I use that terminology because if I say a Nazi, people always say, oh, you shouldn't just call people Nazis. But he used to run a podcast called Blood and Soil. So that's where I get that from, Blood, Soil, and Liberty. So his name is Shane Trio. He's an election whistleblower in Michigan, and he's also a precinct captain in Michigan. And so we started corresponding, and I started going to more of the events that his group was at and hanging out with more of the people in his orbit, I guess. Got it. Talk to me about the timeline here. I mean, when did this start? And then ultimately you had to maybe cancel it a little early because your identity had gotten down. Yeah, I had to cancel it so early. It sucks so much. I... Went to the November Stop the Steel rally in November 2020 here in D.C. I walked over after spin class out at the wharf down to the mall. To be fair, that's what probably most of the women there who were actually there <laughs> protesting were doing that day. No. In fact, they were like, thanks for braving these assholes to come out and go to spin class. And I, everybody was like, oh, all these people. <laughs> but yeah, I, I was on my way home. So I was like, I'll just detour. And I did. And I was like, well, this this is wild. And then podcast had asked me to record some audio from the December stop, the steel rally. So I went to that. And then I was like, well, I could probably sell some audio from the January one. And <laughs> then it was the insurrection. That went for an overtime. You know, I would go down the Trump Doral, 
I flew out to Colorado for a Lauren Boebert fundraiser. I went to Turning Point USA. I went to QAnon John, where I got to watch you get kicked out, Will. (laughs) (laughs) You never approached Will in character, did you? No. I DM'd him and then texted him. So he knew that I was a figure that was there. But no, I made it a point to either out myself to journalists and researchers who were a lot of times local people, a lot of local anti-fascists or a lot of local journalists, just because I was traveling alone. So there was definitely not it really cute on John stuff, but some of the other things, a little bit of danger. If I don't go back to my hotel room, like nobody's going to (laughs) know. It'll be days before people realize I'm gone. So I would always try to like touch base with people, but I would never want to like antagonize somebody in character. (laughs) I got docs on 4chan in September of 2021. And then I skipped an event at Trump Doral in October. And then by the end of October, I was out completely. QAnon John had found me. My fascist friends had found me. So it was all up. But I was supposed to be at Turning Point USA's event a couple weeks ago in Arizona back in December. So, I mean, I already had tickets and everything. So I definitely got found out a little early. So what sort of insights did going up, sort of seeing the far right really up close and personal, what sort of insights did you glean? There's a rise of of right-wing populism among the under 30 crowd that's incredibly alarming to me. A lot of them, I really worry about it because, you know, they'll say stuff like some of the Biden bills don't go far enough. It shouldn't take two working parents to be working 60 hours a week to try to have one child, things like that. Things that could be, you know, left-wing talking points. But within all of that, they really mean like for us, for white people or people who are willing to assimilate and kind of be like tokenized in a way. And I think it doesn't really get a lot of attention. And a lot of that has crossover into school board stuff and CRT and they use that as talking points which their agenda and I see a lot of it well I did see I don't anymore (laughs) I would see a lot of it merging with QAnon boomers and very young fascists and like kind of older fascists all coming together across the conspiracy and and far-right background set to push some of the same ideas and that is I think it's probably not good I also, CRT was something I wasn't familiar with when I first heard it back in April at Trump Doral. I heard entire speeches about it, how it was like CRT exists so that your children are... This would be critical race theory for those who aren't keeping up with the acronyms quite as tightly. Yeah, yeah sorry. Critical race theory, which is about race. <laughs> and, and what they would say, I mean, I, I listened to one of those speeches recently from April and it was like, CRT is what the Democrats are using to make your kids susceptible to becoming child sex life which is like, what? It doesn't even make any sense. But I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I would just hear over and over. So even when things are making news, I feel like there's a little bit of nuance lost in the amount of fear mongering that's going on to just completely terrify people. So in terms of the time that you did spend undercover, can you describe some of the most shocking scenes that you saw? So give us a taste of something that you experienced maybe with some of the bigger names you interacted with that we wouldn't see during their average media appearance or rally performance. I was very disappointing answer for you. I wasn't like palling around with Rudy Giuliani and Michael Flynn. I was hanging out with people who are writing legislation for Congress. They're people whose names you don't know. Please tell us their names. Those people have immense power over people's lives. I'll have an article out in the next couple of weeks in a national publication that you can look forward to reading. Unfortunately, I cannot go into a lot of detail about it here. I think a lot of it is like proximity and like implicitly condoning what's going on. So like Lynn Wood, I didn't know a ton about his like local race or office, but I went to a handful of things where they were teaching us to do like the Linwood path and like basically bully our fairly elected, very like hyper local officials, Republican officials into quitting by like bullying their children, harassing their children and by running smear campaigns against people who were fairly elected and who were ostensibly our own party. And like Lynn Woods just sitting there like nodding along and it's like the guy who's like leading this little class is the guy who convinced him to run for office in South Carolina. So it's just a lot of what I saw is just the people who are in positions of power just being like, yeah, like they like let that person say the stuff more or less the impression that I got from them. That's fascinating. It's certainly from the outside. It does seem like there is an effort to just make being a sort of nonpartisan elections official or a school board member just be so irritating that normal people or people who are well-meaning people just want to quit and sort of leave the field open for the kooks. 
They were talking about like basically harassing people into quitting? Oh, they weren't talking about it. They did it. Presley Stutz <laughs> took over the very local Greenville, South Carolina GOP. I mean, he bullied the woman, Vicky, I forget her last name, who was in charge, into quitting. And now, I mean, he was at an event I was at and there was a COVID outbreak and now he's dead. But I mean, before he died, he was able to accomplish this. That's quite an escalation there in that story. Oh, that happens all the time. A lot of anti-vax people. I had to go to at least a dozen. I don't know what a, a super spreader is in technicality, but if it means everybody there got COVID. I went to at least a dozen super spreader events and people died at almost all of them. And these are people who like were preaching to the to the very last breath, like don't get the vaccine. Just ask for, for ivermectin. No, I don't know if you'll want to cut this or not, but Presley starts when he died of COVID in the hospital. His son was begging the hospital. I mean, like they were totally in cahoots about him not wanting anything reasonable, <laughs> still not wanting the vaccine, not wanting to be intubated. And when he died, a lot of people, including, I believe, including Lynn Wood, if not Lynn Wood, certainly a lot of influencers very, very close to Lynn Wood, it, including, you know, Clay Clark now, who's no longer friends with Lynn Wood, referred to his death as a murder, saying the hospital had murdered him. That's just one of many people I watched that happen to over the last year. Even when it's your your father or your child or your spouse dying of COVID, just still this denialism that goes to the very end. Wow. In terms of the COVID issue, yeah, I mean, were you concerned about as you, certainly when I went to Clay Clark event, folks who don't know, Clay Clark's kind of running this big operation where he takes a lot of these characters around the country. When I went to one of his first ones in Tulsa, I had one vaccine dose, but I was, you're going to a place where that's filled with people who specifically do not like masks or getting vaccinated. I mean, so were you concerned about the COVID risk there? No, I mean, to be frank, because my job was banned in DC as the lowest unemployment place right in the country, I was already like suicidal. Like my life was so ruined. I was getting 7% of my income on unemployment. Couldn't pay my rent, nothing. So at first I didn't care if I lived or died, but on top of that, I had COVID in March, 2020. And then I was vaccinated in February, 2021. Uh, I went on a day that it snowed when I knew people wouldn't be able to get there. Got a shot. So I was vaccinated before CPAC, so which was my first indoor event. So no, I mean, by the time I went to the QAnon John event in Dallas in May, it was very clear to me that the vaccine worked very well because I hadn't gotten sick. And when I did get COVID, I got COVID at Turning Point USA's Student Action Summit in July in Tampa. I probably got it at James O'Keefe's packed bar party, which is just super depressing. So it was very mild. I had literally the sniffles for a day and I couldn't taste anything for two weeks except like olives. And that was it. So it probably should have been more of a concern. <laughs> but in terms of risk, I also thought I figured by the December Stop the Steel rally, I said it's more dangerous to wear a mask than it is to get COVID for me. Because I mean, these people at night, they're ripping people out of cars because they're wearing massive Ubers. They're they're pulling on car doors. They're trying to get people out. They're attacking to random people who are complying with DC's mask law, mask mandate, because they think that anybody who listens to the rules is Antifa. So to me, having already had COVID, I knew a bigger threat to me personally was getting beat up (laughs) on the streets of DC than it was to get COVID. So when you were at January 6th, you'd obviously been following these folks for a couple months. We're recording this on the, the week of the anniversary of January 6th. So I think it's a good time to ask me, how did you feel watching, seeing as how far it went, seeing the people around you? I mean, what were their emotions? And someone who had followed it for a couple months at that point, I mean, did you see this as sort of the culmination of what you've been watching at the other Stop the Steal events in DC? What was your reaction? Yeah, so I think like the mask is a good example because it's been so politicized. I wore a mask in November at the Stop the Steal rally and nobody said a word to me. And December, people started saying stuff. Somebody asked me if I was a journalist. Somebody asked me if I was with the police. Like, and I'm like, the police that you're like high fiving right now. Like, what are you? Doing? You know, like, wouldn't you like that? But whatever. Presumably, you know, asking if I'm a Fed. And so I texted the podcast I was reporting for, and I was like, this is so unsafe. I'm taking this off. By the time I was at night, it's like no way. Part of that was people were talking about how the police. They love the police but the police are useless and it's all the blue cities, all the blue mayors that keep the police down and punish them for doing things like beating people up. And they would tell me that they only trust the Proud Boys. And there was a stabbing in the December Stop the Steel rally. And I'm, I'm walking past this older couple and, you know, we're all in front of this bar, Harry's, which is like the Proud Boys hangout spot. It's late at night. I'm sorry, as a long time former D.C. resident, it breaks my heart that Harry's became the Proud Boy bar during the Trump era in D.C. I love that place and the beer is so cheap. 
<laughs> yeah, there's still like a hang on of locals who go there. <laughs> I've spent a lot of time at Harry's the past year. And it's like, yeah, it's very strange is that people who are locals who go are like just normal DC residents. It's like, why are there so many Proud Boys here? When did this happen? Yeah, they're like, yeah, we talked to Ashley Babbitt because she was here in the morning before she got shot. It's like, oh, this is just the bar you've been going to for like 15 years. And now here we are. Very strange. And definitely not the place to be on December 12th because that is like where everybody would meet up. And so counter protest, I don't even really know who they were. Somebody came over. There was a scuffle. Proud Boys stabbed him. So I'm walking past this older couple maybe an hour later. And it's a guy in his 60s and he's saying to his wife, look, I don't like violence either. If a Proud Boy stabbed him, he must have had a reason. And the wife is like, that's true. Why was he over here anyway? He was probably just going to try to hurt us. No, there's tons of us. And there's like one dude. Like, what's this one dude going to do, right? But this like acceptance and escalation of violence between November and December had me incredibly concerned. In fact, that conversation in particular, like really, really messed with my head. And I was very worried going into the six. And I kind of like waver back and forth where I'm like, these people are idiots. You're talking about taking boats through the tidal basin. What? That's not an option. <laughs> and being genuinely worried. And I remember I couldn't hear anything Trump said on the six. I was, it was so many people. I was too far away. I couldn't get closer than like 15th. Like, like it was just like a wall of people at 15th Street. And whatever he told us to go, or maybe he hadn't told us to go yet, I'm a little fuzzy on the timeline because I've never cared to look into what he said or when he said it. But people started asking, looking around, does anybody know where the Capitol is? And if you're standing where I'm standing, you know, 15th of the Constitution, you can look to your right and you can see the Capitol. And so I texted my friends and I'm like, look at these idiots. Like, they don't even know where the Capitol is. Like, this, we're going to be fine. I was like, I was really worried an hour ago, but I'm f- I think it's going to be fine. I went and put my gas mask back in my office and then marched down to the Capitol with the QAnon shaman. So definitely misjudged that part of the day. But they all start off like pretty cheerful. And I think because there were so many people at January 6th and the mayor had told everybody to stay home and everything was closed in the vicinity, except for Harry's. And TD Bank was open for some reason, <laughs> which was a mistake. I want to loop back quickly to something you said about that supposedly normal looking elderly couple who you were talking to who were just going out of their way to excuse what you could reasonably call a symptom of fascistic violence. This might be a little bit of a random pool, but it reminded me of news footage that I watched back in my college days of TV reporters shoving cameras and microphones in the faces of just average, normal-looking suburbanites asking them, what did you think about what happened with the Kent State shooting? And a inordinately large sum of those people, normal-looking suburbanites, whatever you want to call them, just responded, oh yeah, the students who got killed or got shot, they totally had it coming. I think the National Guard did the absolute right thing. There's just this with the anecdote you described and also with what has happened with millions upon millions upon millions of Republican voters and supporters across this country excusing January 6th and if not explicitly saying it was okay or at least not really caring that other people thought it wasn't. It goes back to your point of how there is sort of this mass psychosis of just very easily and in almost a sort of boring way excusing this kind of political violence. It's sort of scary how commonplace it is. Yeah, it's super common. And it's weird, too, to hear them say, like, they've got an excuse about, you know, the police, the police that younger people that I would hang out with explicitly anti-police. And I never met a Nazi who didn't want to take credit for January 6th. Everybody who's in that kind of stuff is is really into claiming it for what it was. Yes, it's what I watched happen in real time. And then here we are like a year later and it's Antifa and the FBI who did it, who did all the violence. And it's very strange and it's very hard to grapple with um, emotionally, which is not really the point you were saying, (laughs) but it's what I'm feeling at this moment. So it's what you're getting to hear. But I mean, they also did a really good job of convincing people. We're standing like in front of Old Abbott, you know, we're, we're like at 15th and G, which is downtown and it's... Just next to the White House, yeah. Yeah, one block from the White House. They're like, can I walk you? It's not safe. Proud Boys and Three Percenters will come up to you if you went anywhere off of the main little drag. Oh, you're going to your car? Oh, let, let me walk you. Let me help you. And I don't mean like just me because I'm like a younger woman. I mean, they were doing it to everybody. And they did a really good job of making you feel like you had to be afraid, even though they were the only thing really to be afraid of in the area. It made it, I think, very easy for people to fall in line and accept any violence that they did and would do later on. I mean, as we 
we were marching to the Capitol. I'm on the Capitol grounds. So I'm getting up to the steps. And there's Proud Boys coming out every so often. You could tell the Proud Boys. And they're crying because they've been tear gas. And you've got two guys leading out one guy. And, and the police are setting off pepper bombs. And they're exploding. And people are cheering. And the wind is blowing it back at least. So it's not hitting us. And it's little kids and old ladies. And they're like, they're getting Antifa. And it's like, what? <laughs> that's for us. And just this complete removal from reality and what's actually going on. I mean, it started there. I don't really understand how those people like looked at these Proud Boys who had obviously been fighting, <laughs> coming the opposite direction of everybody else and just like, oh, this isn't violent. This is fine. I will never understand the mental gymnastics people have been through with this. So Amanda, you learned a lot during this experience. You have a lot of material. What's next for you in terms of this message? And I guess I would also say if you could share a message with the average person who is following politics, maybe concerned about the state of the country and the right in particular, what would you say you want people to know? I mean, I really just can never stress enough like the rise of like the younger populist fascists and like I said everybody under 35 I met who was at the Capitol says we did it that was us and they accept it and they're like it would have been cooler if we had gotten further and like the founding fathers would be proud of us as opposed to a lot of the like older like big QAnon fans that I would meet would be like, it was a prayer circle and I handed out Bibles to the homeless people and Antifa did the violence. But that narrative is the one that is pushed a lot because obviously I don't think people who like identify as, as you know, American neo-Nazis are doing too many interviews with the press, but grandma is certainly more willing to do them. But yeah, people who were in Identity Europa, people in Patriot Front who were there, they're like, very, very proud of it. People that I know can't speak for obviously these entire groups. And I think it's, I think it's important to recognize that and important to understand that like as much as public figures who have something to lose, who have pushed the Antifa FBI agenda, that is not what anybody like on the ground thinks. And it is like Nick Fuentes gets a pass because he could be in a lot of trouble if he was like, it was us and it was cool as hell. So people make excuses for him, but on the ground, day-to-day life, like people talk about it as though it was something that the right did and that the right should be proud of. So I think with the anniversary coming up, that is something that's important to remember because a lot of these people are looking to hold positions on school board or as precinct captains, and they will matter at a very local level. And that's very scary to me, I think. Chilling message on the January 6th anniversary, but definitely one to consider. Amanda, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. I'm finally here. <laughs> <laughs> Great. And again, and your Twitter handle where you share all these thoughts you have and your experiences is no turtle soup 17. Uh, Amanda, thanks so much. Thank you. And now on to this week's installment of our beloved recurring segment, Fresh Hell. Will, we got to start off the new year by talking about how Let's Go Brandon might have some competition in terms of the go-to catchphrase of the MAGA world and the Republican Party today. Tell us a little bit more about this new catchphrase and just so our listeners, when they're surfing the vast online, if they come across it, they know what to expect and they know what the hell is going on. Yeah, absolutely. So the hot new phrase is mass formation psychosis. And Let's Go Brandon is way cooler and way funnier. I got to be honest. Yeah, Let's Go Brandon had a little more swag to it. So mass formation psychosis is essentially the way it's being used as anyone who disagrees with me has gone insane. So this emerges from Dr. Robert Malone, who claims to have invented mRNA vaccines, which obviously played a big role in the COVID vaccine. This guy has since become sort of a skeptic of the typical public health line on COVID. And so as a result, he's become a hero to many on the right. The Atlantic has a great story sort of disputing his claim to have invented the mRNA vaccine. But nevertheless, I mean, he is a real doctor. He's not as out there as some others in this world certainly in his sort of compatriots. So he went on Joe Rogan last week, which is obviously a massive platform. And he said that like masking and people supporting the vaccines are the result of mass formation psychosis. And in his formulation, mass formation psychosis is when people go crazy and essentially do things he doesn't like. So he said, like in the 20s and 30s, Germans were subject to mass formation psychosis, and they were, quote, hypnotized into supporting Hitler. That is a horrible explanation of what happened in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s in Germany. (laughs) It's funny because basically he wants to say, like, everyone who disagrees with me is a Nazi. Like, you can't really do that anymore. Can you imagine how short the history books would be if all you had to say was, oh, Nazism, it just happened. It just came out of nowhere. 
It's a horrible version of that. But nevertheless, what he's saying is now like everyone who like wears a mask, vaccines, this kind of stuff. These people are themselves. They're this group psychosis. But you know what? It turns out that this is not really a psychological concept at all. Some Belgian guy thought of it, and then Robert Malone got really into it. I looked on Google Scholar for uses of this. It does not exist. It all just cites back to Robert Malone. I mean, it really is like if I invented like one-star reviews of fever dreams. Unfortunately, there's a concept called mass formation psychosis in which people can't tell what a good podcast is because they've gone insane. Public disagreement lethargy. I just came up (laughs) with a new... There, boom. Don't ask what it means. Because of this Joe Rogan interview is such a hit, this has been embraced on the right. So just to run down people who are now using mass formation psychosis to explain everything. Amy Kramer involved in organizing the January 6th protests. Ultimate gaslighting. This is mass formation psychosis. Scott Adams, Dilbert creator. He says we're suffering a, quote, collective mental breakdown because of something called mass formation psychosis. And then, of course, Benny Johnson just tweets mass formation psychosis. This is it. That's it? That's it. I can't stress enough. This is going to be everywhere soon. It's going to be on bumper stickers like, let's go, Brandon. This is going to be in a Trump press release. It's coming. You heard it here first. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.